0: Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Mark chapter 7, verse 14. Mark chapter 7, verse 14. Hear then the word of the Lord. Summoning the crowd again, Jesus told them, I'm sorry, before I read that, just to set up from last week, they were mad at Jesus for not washing his disciples not washing their hands. And this is continuing that story. The, the elders and the Pharisees wanted Jesus and his disciples to wash their hands. Jesus didn't care for that tradition um, for cleaning your hands for ceremonial ceremonial cleanliness before God. And so he continues here in verse 14. Summoning the crowd again, he told them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Verse 17. When he went into the house away from the crowd, the disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you also lacking understanding in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a man from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated. As a result, he made all foods clean. Then he said, what comes out of a person, that defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, promiscuity. Stinginess, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you again that we can meditate on such a clear and straightforward word from you. Father, it is our prayer this morning that your word would transform our lives. We pray that we would be sanctified by your truth, for your word is truth. We pray for your Holy Spirit to convict us of sin, to lead us to repentance, to strengthen our faith and our hope in the cross, the old rugged cross that we want to cling to until we die. Father, give us fresh resolve and fresh motivation to grip and cling to the old rugged cross with all of our might. We pray, Father, For those who don't know you yet, those who have not yet been born again by your Spirit, we pray that this morning your Spirit, like the wind that blows where it wishes it, your Spirit would come and cause people to be born again through the living and enduring Word of God. So, Father, speak to us from the text that we just read. As we meditate on it, guide our thoughts, guide our hearts, and soften us, we pray. Apart from you, Lord Jesus, apart from your Spirit, We can do nothing. So help us, for we are desperate and needy and helpless. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What is the biggest problem in your life? Not a big problem, but the biggest biggest problem. Not just a problem, not just a big one, but the single biggest one. What is it? cbsnews.com, April 2014, wrote this. Each year in the U.S., approximately 12 million adults who seek outpatient medical care are misdiagnosed, according to a new study published in the journal, and it has a medical journal here, BMJ Quality and Safety. This figure amounts to one out of 20 adult patients, and researchers say in half of those cases, the misdiagnosis has the potential to result in severe harm. Getting 95% of right may be good on a school history test, he notes, but it's not good enough for medicine, especially when lives are at stake. Is that true? Imagine a misdiagnosis, one out of 20 adults getting a misdiagnosis, and half of those, 6 million adults, it could be severely damaging, life-threatening perhaps. Imagine getting checked, and you being one of the 6 million Americans who get misdiagnosed resulting in severe harm. Maybe even an early and preventable death because you were misdiagnosed. That's scary. And that gets at the main point of the passage we are meditating on this morning here in Mark chapter 7. Here's the main idea. You miss the prescription because you have missed the diagnosis. That's what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees here. You miss the prescription, the right course of action, because you've missed the diagnosis, you've misdiagnosed it, and when you misdiagnose it, there can be big problems, and no bigger problem than misdiagnosing this problem, this God problem. The the text has a problem here that it's pointing out to us, and it's seen in verse 15. What are we talking about here in verse 15? Nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. We are talking about defilement this morning. Uncleanliness. I'm not talking about sanitary uncleanliness. I'm talking about ceremonial uncleanliness before God. Sin before God. Being cut off from the people of God because of our uncleanliness and our sin against God. That's the problem. And that's a big problem. That's, that's the biggest problem in the world. And that's the biggest problem in our lives. It's a God problem. We have a God problem. It's the largest problem in our lives and in the universe. And they had that problem right, but they got the cause of this problem wrong. What causes the God problem? What is the cause of this God problem? Well, Jesus goes into it here and he says, you guys have misdiagnosed the cause of the God problem. And so we are going to look at the lie. We're going to look at the truth. And then we're going to look at the solution. Okay. First, we're going to look at the misdiagnosis, the lie then the truth, the right diagnosis, and then the solution, the proper prescription to the actual situation. So first, the lie. Verses 14 to 19, we have the lie laid out for us. And the problem, is not, is, is, the problem is, that, is not that you do unclean things. Look at verse 14 again. So Jesus summoned the crown, and he said, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Verse 15, nothing that goes into a person from the outside can defile him. That was their diagnosis. The problem is... The elders were saying that when you eat with unclean, ceremonially unclean hands, you are now defiled before God. And so if you can just wash your hands, you can do away with the God problem because you won't be unclean anymore. The solution is to wash your hands ceremonially. That was their diagnosis is that unclean hands is that the diagnosis and their solution is wash them ceremonially. Look at verse 17. So Jesus says that doesn't work. And then verse 17, when he went into the house away from the crowd, the disciples asked asked Jesus because he did not explain it to the crowd. What do you mean? It's not what goes into the body that defiles a person, but what comes out of the body. What does that even mean, Jesus, Rabbi? And so Jesus explains it in verse 18. He says, are you also lacking understanding? Wow, sort of a jab here. Now, Jesus is not being petty with his insults. They were expected to understand this. He's been teaching them up to this point, at least a year and a half. They should have got it by now, but they didn't. And so, are you also lacking in understanding? He says in verse 18, Don't you realize that nothing going into a man from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach, and is eliminated in the latrine, it says, or in the toilet. So, what the food you take in cannot defile your body. Why not? Because you have a digestive system. You you eat it, you digest it, and you expel it. And that's it. How can that defile you before God? That's not the problem Jesus is saying in verse 18. That can't be the problem. And then verse 19, he says, For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach, and it's eliminated. It doesn't go into your soul. It doesn't defile you before God. And then it says at the end of verse 19, As a result, he made all foods clean. Side note, just just in case you're wondering, some of you might be asking the question, where's verse 16? If you have a King James or New King James, you have a verse 16. If you have an NIV or any updated translation, you don't have a verse 16. That's not a taking out of God's word. That's relying on the best manuscripts and the oldest manuscripts we have of the New Testament. Verse 16 is not in the original. It was added on later. And so, and um, the later translations are based on, uh, I mean, the older translations, the, the King James particularly is based on on, on newer manuscripts before that we found the older ones. And so that's why verse 16 is not there. Just so you know, we're not taking out verses from the Bible. It's just um, New Testament scholarship and, and what we have found. So here, though, look at verse 19. If the food going into your body is expelled through your body, then he declares all foods what? Clean. Now, in the Old Testament, Leviticus 11 and other places, it says that certain foods were unclean. So Jesus is even going under their, their complaint. Their complaint is you need to do what with your hands? You need to what? Wash them. Jesus is saying even the food that would make you unclean in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, the Law Covenant, are no longer going to be binding to make you unclean in the New Testament. So you guys are just getting at the hand thing. I'm actually going after what the Bible actually says, the Old Testament, where it says certain foods are unclean. I'm not, I'm not destroying the law. I'm fulfilling it. And as I fulfill it, it is no longer going to be applicable and obligatory on those who follow me. So that was their current solution to their problem. The current solution for them is wash your hands ceremonially and you'll get rid of your God problem. Jesus says, nope, that's not good enough. That's a lie. It's not the things you do. That's not a good solution to the problem. Now, today, in our world, there are many views of what the biggest problem in the world is today. And so you'll hear big solutions in the culture today. Some big solutions in our culture today are education. Have you heard that before? What the world needs, what our country needs more of is education. And we do. It would be a good thing. Certainly, I'm not promoting illiteracy. you know. But at the same time, education might solve the problem of unemployment because you get better jobs. And it might solve the problems of crime or bring the crime rate down because people have jobs. They have more to lose. So, yes, it might do some good things, but it will also give you more educated sinners. Right? Just because you're educated doesn't take away the greed and the sin and the oppression. It just makes you more educated to do what you want to do. Some people say government is the problem or the solution. Maybe if we get the right government, we could solve the problem of oppressive groups. We need to just elect the right officials and get the right government. Now, I'm for getting right officials and and government. We're supposed to pray for them according to 2 Timothy or 1 Timothy 2. But what about when the government sinfully oppresses the people? So if the government is there to check injustice, that's true. But what about when the government is unjust? So government, is that really the solution to get the right officials? Some people might say, well, okay, here's the, here's the solution to our world. Economy and jobs. If we get the right economics, we get enough wealth to enough people, people can invest, and we can, whether big government or small government, if we get the right economy and get enough jobs, that will solve the problem of crime and unemployment. Yes, it might help. It certainly will. Now, it might be a blessing. But then all you'll, what you'll have is wealthy sinners. It's not like when you get rich, you stop sinning, right? Aren't there wealthy people who oppress others? So if we just had more people more wealthy, that doesn't take care of the problem. That just gives them more resources to do their thing, right? Some people say, here's the, here's the solution. Tolerance among religions. No one should say that there's one right religion, because that's, if you think about the Middle East, what is the war about? It's about religious views, right? And so if, if these religions, Christianity, who says Jesus is the only way, or Islam, who says that there's only one God and one major prophet, or the, the, prim, not, or the final prophet, Muhammad as the greatest prophet. And so you have these religions that are clashing because they're making claims that their way is the one true way. So solution? No religion is the one true way. Let's all tolerate one another. That will solve the problem of wars and strife in this world. They say. Perhaps. But then you have people holding hands on a sinking ship, rather than finding solution, the solution to save the ship from sinking. So if the if the ship is sinking and someone says there is a right way to fix the ship, and someone says I have the right way, and they start fighting about which the right way is, they say, you know what? Let's not fight. Let's just hold hands. We can hold hands, but the ship is going to go down, right? And so just tolerating religions doesn't solve the problem if there's an actual problem that the religions are trying to solve. So tolerance doesn't do it. By the way, if you say that everyone should just tolerate others and there is no one right religion, that itself is a religious claim. That's another religion, to say that there is no other right religion. So why is your religion right? That doesn't make sense, right? Okay, another... Last solution that the culture gives is strong families. Strong families make a strong society. It helps people with education for sure. It helps with the economy. And, and I, you know, I certainly believe in stronger families. Amen. Yes and amen. But strong families are, is not the final solution. Strong. If you have strong families, sometimes they can be so strong that they can use their familial pressure to keep people from Jesus because they put family over Jesus. Or They force family members to at least fake following Jesus. It goes both ways. A family can be so idolatrous they keep their family from following Jesus because they'll put Jesus above their family. That's wrong. But the other side of it is Christian families can be so family, family, family that they almost force their children to be Christians. And we're Baptists. We believe in regenerate church membership, meaning you can't force anyone to be a Christian, right? They have to choose on their own. We can't force conversion. You can't pressure and guilt trip your children or grown children into Christianity. That doesn't work. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ, right? Not by us, parents, or family members forcing social and familial pressure on our family. That doesn't work. And so that's not the solution. Okay, those are some cultural solutions to some problems in our world. What about some religious answers to our day? Islam says, you know what the, the issue is? If you want to get right with God, you need... The goal for Islam is paradise, is paradise, entering paradise. And that comes through a belief in God, a belief in the day of judgment, and a belief in, lead, or in leading a righteous life. And so they have five pillars. Do these five pillars and believe in God and believe in the judgment to come, and you might make it to paradise. Hinduism has four ascending goals from righteousness to wealth to pleasure to liberation from this world and union with the deity as they believe. And you use the millions of gods and the rituals to draw close to these gods to eventually get there. Buddhism has the goal of nirvana. That's the solution to their problem. There's their, that's their prescription. Get to nirvana. Well, you need to get to nirvana. And how you get there, their prescription is, you need to deliver your mind. That means the final goal is the cessation of all suffering and conflict and supreme happiness. You do this through meditation. So, your pain is not real. If I break my arm, it's just a physical thing. I need to. It's mind over matter pretend, I would say as a Christian, not a Buddhist, pretend my arm isn't broken and the pain is just in your mind. It's not real. And if you can release your mind from the physical, then you'll be happy supremely and you'll reach nirvana if you can meditate enough to do that. So that's their prescription. Meditate and clear your mind by meditative chants. Not biblical meditation of meditating on scripture. Meditative chants over and over until your mind just tunes out the world. Roman Catholicism, their goal is to get to heaven but the way they, their prescription is, you need to do the seven sacraments, starting with baptism. The way you're born again is through baptism as a baby. And that's regenerative baptism. You're born again, and then you keep the sacraments to stay within grace, so that when you die, you can go to heaven and have more grace than sin. You go to purgatory for a little bit, and then you get to go to heaven. So their prescription is keep the sacraments. All of these religious views I just told you, their solutions are similar in this way. They are all solutions that are outside in solutions. The problem is on the. The solution is do stuff on the outside and it'll change your inside. Do the five pillars. Do the sacraments. Do the meditations. Do the rituals. Do these things and your inside will be changed. Those are outside in solutions. And they miss the prescription because they miss the diagnosis. You can't do the outside in solutions. And so Jesus tells us, that's the first thing. First thing we looked at was the the lie, that the problem is on the outside. That's a lie. Here's the, the, the truth. The truth is the problem is on the inside. Look at verse 20 through 23. Verses 20 through 23 in your Bible. Verse 20 says this. Then Jesus said, What comes out of a person, that defiles him. For from within... Out of people's hearts come evil thoughts: evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, promiscuity, stinginess, blasphemy, pride and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. So here's all the evil, you get a list of evil things here. Sins that defile and make you unclean and separate you from God, which means you'll be in judgment before God because of these sinful things. But where do they come from? Where is the source of the problem? The heart. Your heart. It's inside of you. The problem is inside of you. It's inside of me, not outside. Washing hands won't do it. Because the problem is in here, not out here. Now let's look at this list before we meditate on this further. Let's, let's, let's think through this. List. Evil thoughts. Now I'm reading out of the Christian Standard Bible. Yours might be a little different, but not too different. Out of your heart come evil thoughts. What are evil thoughts? Evil thoughts are not just thoughts that are rebellious against God explicitly. Evil thoughts can also be God marginalizing, where God's just not the center of the thought. So you can have a thought that is not God-centered, and that's evil or God ignoring. We we put the ball we put the bar so low on what an evil thought is. An evil thought is ignoring God, whether you eat or drink do everything to the what? glory of God. Whatever you do in word or deed do in the name of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 3. Our thoughts are to be consumed with God as central, not peripheral. Not gone from our thoughts. That's evil thoughts already and that comes from the heart. So that's evil thoughts. Not only that. Second on this list is what in verse twenty-one: sexual immoralities, lust, immodesty, pornography, gratifying oneself physically by yourself, fornication, homosexual activity, bestiality. We get to adulteries later. Polygamy. All of these are sexual immoralities. Sexual immoralities is basically any sexual activity outside of. Marriage, thought or action outside of the marriage between one man and one woman. That's what sexual immoralities are. And that comes from where? From the heart. What else? Thefts. What's theft? Stealing, coveting, wanting something that's not yours. Lying on your taxes. Fudging the numbers. Thefts. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Murders. Next is murders. Killing, abortion is another way of murdering today. right? I don't know if you've seen the videos from Center for Medical Progress with all their video stings of Planned Parenthood, but those are breathtakingly atrocious. So murders, killing, abortions, hating someone. Jesus said, you, you, the, um, you have heard it said unto you, do not murder. I say unto you, if you even hate your brother, you are guilty of murder. Matthew chapter 5. So murders. What do you have next on the list? Verse 22. Adulteries. Again, lust for other people who are married or lusting yourself as a married person and even acting on these lustful thoughts and desires. Next is Greed. Again, there's envy, loving money. The love of money is the root of all evil. Not, money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. Greed, possessions, loving your possessions. Next on the list, evil actions. That's pretty broad, right? Just actions, uh, action, acting on evil thoughts, which are God marginalizing and God ignoring and God violating. That's anything. Next on the list is deceit. Deceit. So there's lying, white lies, deception, fraud. Next on the list, promiscuity. Again, expressions of sexual immorality in dress and thoughts and actions. Lewdness is one translation. Stinginess is another sin. Not being generous. Not stewarding your money well to be generous. Laying up tra- not laying up treasures in heaven. Stinginess. Blasphemy is next. Speaking against God. Speaking against God's name, speaking against God's character or God's word as he has revealed himself in the word, that's blasphemy. Taking the name of the Lord your God in vain, taking the name of Jesus the Messiah, the Christ in vain, blasphemy. Pride. Pride is just self-exaltation, chopping down others in your mind, cutting them down so that you can size yourself up next to them. Lifting yourself up against each other, you always being the one who's right, and everyone else is always wrong, because you're never wrong, right? I'm never wrong. And last on this list is foolishness. Now, what's the opposite of foolishness? Wisdom, right? And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So what's the beginning of folly? Not fearing the Lord. Leaning on one's own understanding rather than leaning on God's understanding. Leaning on your own wisdom and insight, not fearing God. All of these things, this whole list comes from where? From the heart. It comes from within. It's not because your friends pressured you into it. It's not because you were raised that way. It's not because of the culture around you. It's not because you were in such a, a high, tense situation and so that other person made you do it. It came from where? From the heart. Remember Adam and Eve, when God said, Adam, why did you do it? And he says, the woman you gave me. And the woman, what did you do? The serpent, blaming other people. Jesus is very clear here. Where's the problem? It's us. The problem is the heart. Here's here's the summary of it. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Did you get that? We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because... Because we have a heart condition of being a sinner. It's from the inside out, not the outside making us. It's not the outside in, it's the inside out. We are not sinners because we sin, we sin because we are sinners. Our problem is a problem of the heart. We have a sin condition. We are broken and corrupt and poisoned at the core of who we are. And there's four aspects to this as we let me just take you through some other Bible verses to fill out this biblical teaching here of the sinful condition of humanity. Romans three twenty three says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How bad is this sinful condition? It, it infects and affects everyone. There's only one human who has never sinned, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph, adopted son of Joseph, son of Mary. He's the only human in human history who has never sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What else do we learn about our sin condition? Our sin and rebellion is comprehensive apart from God's grace. This covers everything that we are. Romans 3.9 says this. Paul writes, What then? Are we any better? Not at all. For we have previously charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no not one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become useless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Vipers' venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet, it's not just their mouth, their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes." This sin is pervasive. It's not just the heart, it's the mouth, it's the eyes that don't fear God, it's the feet that walk in paths of evil, it's your hands, it's everything. John 3.19 says, Everyone who practices wicked things, John 3.20, Everyone who practices wicked things hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. Everything we do, here's another thought, a third aspect of this sin condition. Everything we do, apart from grace, is sin. Everything you, I don't know if you've thought about this, but before God's grace affects a person, they cannot obey God even once. Everything they do is sinful. Everything? Helping an old old person cross the street, can that be sinful? Giving to a charity, can that be sinful? Really? Well, let me show you some Bible verses, because it doesn't matter what I say, it matters what the Bible says. Romans 14.23. Romans 14.23 says this, Everything that is not from faith is sin. That's Romans 14 23. Everything that is not from faith is sin. If you're not trusting Jesus in it, it's sin. And if you're not trusting Jesus, you don't have faith in God, you're always doing everything not from faith. Hebrews eleven six without faith it is impossible to what? Please God. For the one who draws near to him must believe that he is, and he rewards those who diligently seek him. If you don't believe in God without faith, it is what? Impossible to please God. You do not, cannot, will not please God without faith. Romans 7.18 says this. Paul writes, For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. So here's another way of putting it. Here's the fourth truth. We are morally unable to submit to God and do good on our own. We are morally unable to submit to God and do good on our own. Turn to Romans 8. Keep your finger in Mark chapter 7. You need to see this in the Bible. Romans chapter 8. If you're in Mark, just turn to the right. Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, verse 5. Or we'll pick it up in verse 6. Romans 8, 6. (laughs) Romans 8, 6 says, For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Listen to verse 7. For the mindset of the flesh is what? Hostile to God. Hostile to God. Why? Because it does not submit itself to God's law. And then finish the verse. What? It is unable to do so. And then look at verse 8. What does it say? Those who are in the flesh, what? Cannot, cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They cannot submit to God's law. They are unable to do so. Ephesians 2.1 says, You're dead in your trespasses and sin. We were by nature children of wrath. Ephesians 3, 1, or 2, 3. Ephesians 2.5 says, We were dead in our trespasses. Jeremiah 13.23 says this. Listen to Jeremiah 13.23. It says this. Can a Cushite change his skin or a leopard his spots? If so, you might be able to do what is good, you who are instructed in evil. Now, can an Ethiopian or can a Cushite change his skin color? No. Can a leopard change his spots? No. Can a sinner do what is good here? I mean, that's the logic of the verse. No, not on your own, at least. So here, if you're saying, okay, wait, moral inability, what does that mean, PJ? It's a big word, moral inability. What is that? Let me distinguish between moral inability and natural or physical inability. So, if you're naturally unable to do something, that might mean that you want to do it. You have a choice and a desire to do it, but you are limited by something outside of your desire. So, for example, I want to dunk a basketball. I'd like to do that. I have a desire to do it, a genuine desire to do it. I choose to to do it, but I can't do it. I'm out of shape. I'm physically unable. To do it. I, I, now, you say, PJ, don't you have the freedom of choice to do it? Yes, I have the freedom of choice. I want to do it, but I am physically unable to do it. That is called natural or physical inability. Moral inability is saying I am morally unable to do it because I lack the will to do it, or I have a strong contrary will that disables me from doing it, from wanting to do it, and f- disables me from acting. So, moral inability is due to either the lack of a will to do it or the opposition of another will inside you that makes you not want to do it. So, for example, I may be physically and naturally able to take my minivan, put my kids inside, and speed through five traffic lights on a red light. Am I able to do that physically and naturally? Can I do it? Yes. But I lack the will to do it. And not only do I lack the will to do it, I have a contrary will. I want to keep my kids safe. So if you ask me, PJ, could you ever drive through five red lights in an intersection going 50 miles per hour with your kids in it? I would say, I can't do it. I cannot do it. Now, you might say, well, PJ, come on, cannot. You can do it. Just get in the car. You can physically do it. Don't say you can't do it. No. Morally, I have no desire to do that. And I have other strong, overwhelming desires that would never make me want to do it. And those are my personal desires. I am morally unable to do it. And that is how it is with us as sinners. That's how you should read Romans 8. When it says they cannot please God, it's not that they can't obey God's word. It's not that they can't believe in Jesus. Of course they can. They just don't want to. They lack the, we, we, we don't want to. We lack the desire and we have contrary desires where we don't, we don't want to exalt God. We want to exalt who? Ourselves. So we have contrary desires and we lack the desire to please God. Even when we give and we do religious things, like these people here in Mark 7 were doing religious things, why did they do religious things? Why did they clean their hands? For God's glory? To obey God's word? No. Jesus just said they set aside the command of God's word to keep their own tradition. In other words, they want to earn God's favor so that God has to give them what they want because of what they did. That's not worshiping God. That's using God to get what you want. I want heaven Here's the system I have to get there. God, you have to give it to me. Is that worshiping God when you're generous and you're giving to charities so that God owes you? That's sin. That is sin. Everything we do apart from God's grace is sin. So in summary, our sinful, sinful condition means that we are all by nature corrupt apart from God's grace. Our hardness and rebellion against God is is complete and comprehensive. Our mouth, our minds, our hearts, our feet, our hands. Everything we do in our life is is rebellion and tainted by sin. And we are unable to submit to God or reform ourselves. And therefore, we are totally deserving wrath. The wages of sin is death. And we have chosen it. We have lacked the desire to do good. There is none who does good. There is none who seeks for God. We have lacked the desire and we have chosen contrary desires to what God has called us to do. And isn't that the story of the Old Testament? God saves his people out of Egypt and what do they do? They build a golden calf at Sinai and then later they complain that they can't take over the land and they don't believe God. And then later they complain in the wilderness and then when they get into the land they mix up their religion with other religions in the land. Then they get kings. They get the greatest king, King David. What does he do? He commits adultery, and then he takes a census. And then his son, the wisest of all kings, married 700 women and started worshiping their gods and led Israel into idolatry. The greatest kings failed. And then when the, the nation was on decline, they had prophets come and call them to repentance. And what did they do with the prophets? They killed them, and they jailed them, and they marginalized them. The prophets were warning about exile. The exile came. Did they say, oh, okay, now we're going to listen to the prophets, right? No. They still disobeyed the prophets when they returned from exile. And then when Jesus comes on the scene here in Mark, what do the people do? The religious people who have the Old Testament book that points to Jesus, when Jesus comes, the fulfillment of all their Old Testament scriptures, and he's right in their face, what do they do with him? They crucify him on the cross. God in the flesh was crucified on the cross. That's how hard our hearts are. Their story is our story. That's us. That's how hard our hearts are. Even when Jesus returns, they're going to, in Revelation, they're going to cry out for rocks to crush them, but they won't repent and follow Jesus. Because the problem is where? It's on the inside. It's a heart problem. It's a condition problem. And our sinful condition is so... I mean, that's, we, that's what we need. We need to deal with that particular diagnosis. I'm not sure if you remember. I'm not going to mention his name because I shouldn't mention inf- infamous people who deserve no public credit for their names, even in infamy. But there was one shooter. I don't know if you remember a few years ago. There's a lot of shooters. But in uh, Santa Barbara, who killed a bunch of college kids, and he had a manifesto, and he had a video out and things like that. But um, you know what, what he was looking for, I, I was watching the analysis. I, I checked it yesterday just to see what does the culture say the problem is. And here's what they're, prob- they, what they're saying. The, this is the professionals. He had no relevance and meaning in his life and he lacked skills to interact with people around him. Another problem that would have solved it is the police weren't trained psychologists who could pick up on the clues. Barbara Walter said that this this college student was sick. Not just like disgusting but like he was sick mentally. That was the problem. Mental illness. The dad said and here's what the dad said in an interview. The father of the murderer. The mass murderer. On the outside is one thing and on the inside is something else. He's right. He's right. But he doesn't quite know what is on the inside. Whereas Jesus tells us exactly what's on the inside, right? We have a list of what's on the inside. And that is our problem. Now, you're saying, PJ, this is very sad. You're just, you know, kind of telling us how bad we are. How is this good for us to know this? Here's Here's why it's good. You can't fully grasp God's saving work of forgiving you and justifying you and redeeming you and perfecting you if you don't see your true condition. You can't appreciate it. Secondly, you can't embrace Christ as Savior without knowing your need for a Savior. Thus, saving faith depends on knowing your sinfulness. And then, knowing your sinful condition condition actually deepens your humility, which sweetens and strengthens all your significant relationships. It's good to know that you have a sinful condition, because it's true. So, when you interact with your family and friends and church family, just know that you're a sinner, and you need God's grace, right? And you're interacting with other sinners who need God's grace. That makes it a lot easier to deal with conflict, because, hey, we're, we're sinners, who are going to sin against each other. That doesn't make sin okay. Sin is never okay. But it it helps to just understand each other as as we relate to one another, knowing our sinful condition. Okay, so what's the lie? The lie is the problem is on the outside. What's the truth? The problem is where? On the inside. And it's our personal problem. What's the solution? What is the solution? Now, I already told you what the solution is not. It's not total isolation from the world and worldliness. You can't clean yourself from the outside in. It's not religion or, like we learned last week, traditionalism or ritualism. We already saw how that misses the point. That's like rearranging chairs on the Titanic as it's sinking. No point in rearranging the chairs when the Titanic is sinking. uh, Traditionalism and ritualism won't do it. It won't get to the heart. So what is the solution? Maybe we'll say, hey, there's no solution. We're all sinners. Nobody's perfect anyways, right? To err is human, they might say. So maybe we should just be hopeless and throw our hands up and say, well, I guess I'm a sinner. I might as well go on sinning now. No, that's not quite the right answer. That would lead to a a far worse world than we already have. Here's what Charles Spurgeon says. Here's Charles Spurgeon's solution. The great 19th... Have you heard of Charles Spurgeon? He's the great 19th century pastor and evangelist who shared the gospel and saw hundreds, thousands come to to know Jesus Christ and repent from their sins and trust in Him. Here's what he said. He writes, We declare on scriptural authority... That the human will is so desperately set on mischief, so depraved, so inclined to everything that is evil, and so disinclined to everything that is good, that without the powerful, supernatural, irresistible influence of the Holy Spirit, no human will ever be constrained toward Christ. We need the Holy Spirit. Because our wills and our sin run so deep. In other words, we need a heart transplant. Right? If the problem is the heart, we need a heart transplant. It's an inside-out problem. You need a heart transplant. Those in need of a heart transplant are at death's door. If they don't get a heart transplant, they will die. So it is with us. If we don't have our evil, sin-producing hearts taken out and replaced, we will die forever in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death under God's judgment for our sins. That is the problem. And religion, rituals... Even Christian rituals won't accomplish this. Like a heart transplant that is beyond your ability and resources, so it is here. Can you realistically perform a heart transplant on yourself? I mean, what if you were a heart surgeon? What if you're one of the best heart surgeons in America? Even if you're the best heart surgeon in America, you still can't do a heart transplant on yourself, right? You still need need outside help to get the heart transplanted. So let me read to you some verses with some hope and good news about a heart transplant. Listen to Jeremiah 31, 33. It says this. The Lord says, I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Listen to Ezekiel 36. This is sweet. God says, Ezekiel thirty-six, twenty-five to 27, I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. That's a heart transplant. Taking out the heart of stone, putting in a heart of flesh, giving us the Holy Spirit. Who's the one doing all that? Who's the doctor here? Who's the surgeon? God is, right? God is the one doing this. Or, remember Nicodemus and Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 5? Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, Ezekiel 36, you're going to be cleansed by water and given a new spirit. Unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed that I told you, you must be born again. You must be born again. God is the one, God's spirit is the one that gives us the new birth. George Whitfield, the great 18th century evangelist who led thousands to Christ, said this. Or he was asked. He would preach. He was a Billy Graham before Billy Graham. Traveling everywhere, sharing the gospel. So, you know, and he'd preach everywhere. And he was the most famous person in the world at the time. And someone said to him, Why do you keep saying over and over and over again, You must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. Be born again. Why do you keep saying that, George? And he said, because you must be born again. <laughs> That's right. Why am I saying it? Because you need to do it. You need it. It's true. If this comes about by the Spirit, who goes wherever he wishes like the wind, and it's out of our control, what do we do? Aren't we supposed to do something? Yes. Look at, listen to James 1.18. If we need this new birth, how does it come? It says in James 1.18, By God's own choice, he gave us a new birth by the message of truth. So that we would be the first fruits of his creature. Listen to 1 Peter 1.23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. And this is the word. And this, and, and this is the word that was preached as the gospel to you. So how are you born again? Through the preaching of the gospel. Through the word of God, the Spirit causes you to be born again. Because when you hear the word of God, faith comes by hearing the word of God, and then you are saved. And that is tied to the new birth. So you need the gospel to be born again. And what is the gospel? Every member of our church, I assume does, we should know the gospel. What is the gospel? If you're a visitor here, this is a good Sunday to be here because I'm going to tell you what the gospel is. Here's what the gospel is. The gospel is good news. And here's the good news. God made you and made the whole world and he made us in in his image to enjoy him forever. What a privilege to rule over the world and enjoy Him forever. Here's the problem. We took this privilege and used it for our own self-exaltation and disobeyed Him. We chose to rebel against Him and not reflect Him, so we are sinners by nature and by choice, and we will be judged and condemned for our sin. PJ, I thought this was good news. It is. Here's the good news. We deserve sin, but Jesus came to be the one to give the transplant. What did Jesus do? He's not only the doctor, he's the donor. What does he do? He goes on the cross, and it says in 2 Corinthians 5:21, he who knew no sin became sin for us. He becomes sin for us. He hangs on the cross and takes our sin, our evil, wretched hearts. He becomes that for us on the cross. And he faces the judgment of God as God pours out His wrath for every single sin I have ever done and every single sin you have ever done, if you will turn from your sins in repentance and trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ became sin for us so we can be saved. That is the gospel. It's the good news about Jesus who died for us and rose for us. And the free offer that if you, sitting here, will turn from your sins and turn from your religion, and turn from your own righteousness, and trust in Jesus Christ, in His life and death and resurrection, in His righteousness, you can be saved. Faith doesn't change your heart. Repentance doesn't change your heart. Jesus changes your heart. And faith and repentance connect you to Jesus. It's like crying out to a doctor for help. Does the cry out to the doctor save you, or does the doctor save you? The doctor saves you. But how did the doctor know to get to you? Because you cried out, right? And so, the doctor doesn't rush to the aid of the healthy, but the sick. And Jesus is the Savior who didn't come for righteous people, but for the desperate, helpless, and damned sinners. Do you see your need for Jesus? Do you see that you need the doctor, who is also the donor? Praise God. To get a heart transplant, someone has to lose a heart, right? You don't just... Get a heart transplant like there's extra hearts lying around anywhere. Someone has to die. And then what do you feel if you got a heart transplant to you? You feel grateful forever, right? Thank you. You know, I'll never forget the person who donated their organ to me. And we feel gratitude as we have received it. And so Jesus Christ is the doctor and the donor. And we are called now. I'm calling you to call on him because he wants to save you this morning. And if you're a Christian, he wants you to rejoice. And remember your sinful condition and your redemption. And he wants this message to define our church family. Because we must be defined by the gospel of Christ's life, death, and resurrection for us. So that all can hear. And when they hear, faith might come by hearing. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven. Great physician and surgeon of souls. Thank you. For not leaving us in our sin, sick, selfish, proud hearts. You love the world. You so love the world that you gave your only son. You didn't have to, but you did. And he died and he became sin for every wicked, evil thought and action I and all of us have ever done. And for that, we praise you. We love you. We worship you. We honor you. And we trust you afresh today. And we pray for any of our friends here, Father, who have not yet trusted in Christ to save them. We pray that today, like our brother Gail already prayed, that today people would call on you and on your son Jesus to save them from the sin. That would curse us all to hell. Thank you Lord Jesus. For bearing our sins. On the cross. Help us as a church family. To keep the diagnosis in our minds. And the solution in our minds. And help us to share it with all of these people around us. Who so desperately need a proper diagnosis. And the right prescription. Namely faith in Jesus Christ. We love you.